Welcome to the HR Happy Hour Show with Steve and Trish. We've got a great topic today and a timely one. We're going to be talking with our friends at Culture Amp all about the great resignation, how it's affecting organizations, and, and maybe what are some of the things organizations can do to combat it. Because we know like it's the labor market's crazy right now. But before we get into that, Trish, I have a question for you. Let me okay, give you a little setup. A little setup. I find myself sadly becoming like my dad, right? So <laughs> I just, right, that's what just happens, right? As you get older. So here's my question for you, Trish. What old person in finger air quotes thing do you do now? What's one old person thing you'll admit to doing? That's really difficult. Okay. Uh, the first thing that popped to mind is I try to overfeed every single human I come into contact with. Okay. So I, I'm going to like, like my mother, I'm going to be like, Hey, would you like some of this? Let me give you some of mine. Can I give you some more of that? I mean, like I am so focused on everyone else eating then I was never like that before. So, so. You're, t- you're turning into that grandma who just wants I am. to feed you relentlessly when you walk I'm, into her house. Okay. You got That's it. Good. I'm going to feed and overfeed everyone. Mine's a very specific one. The reason I thought okay. of this question, because of something that happened to me the other day, <laughs> I, I, I had to drive somewhere, I think to the airport, I think it was from point A to the airport. And I found myself like boring the crap out of someone after that trip with discussing traffic and how I made really good time. <laughs> You know, and I feel like that's a very old person thing to do. Like young people don't care about like they got off on route seven instead of route 12 and, and they, no. they get stuck in like, no one talks about that except old people. So there you go. They don't. That's my no, well, so related to that, did you ask them about like about the scenery too? I feel like that's an old person thing to be like, point out the scenery. Like my mom used to always do that one too in the car. And I'd be like, I'm not even looking like, what are we talking yeah, about? It's, it's, it's sad. <laughs> it's sad getting old for many reasons. That's one. All right. Well, good stuff, Trish. Let's get into it. We've got a great topic today. A super guest waiting to join us. We are very excited to welcome our special guest, Kenneth Matos, PhD. That's cool. Director of people science at culture amp. He leads a global team of psychologists and researchers who provide clients with actionable advice on collecting, understanding, and acting on employee feedback through evidence-based methodologies. Dr. Matos educates and coaches the culture and community and speaks to mainstream media on the strategic impact of emerging trends in workplace culture and employee experience. Prior to Culture Amp, he provided technical and strategic leadership on a wide range of workforce research and consulting projects. And his research covers issues of diversity and inclusion, employee well-being, leadership, and organization culture. Ken, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I, well, I'm, I, it's great to have you here. Appreciate you joining us. Um, I don't want to force you to weigh in on the old person comment because you don't look like an old person, but it, you, you know, it's, it's fair if you'd like to. If not, that's okay too. I definitely find that I have to check on whether or not my references are uh, received. So I talk about a movie or a thing I've seen and I get the blank look and I was like, you've never even heard of what I'm talking about. Have you? <laughs> oh no. <laughs> like, okay. All right. Uh, is this a moment I explain it or do we just keep moving? Oh yeah. gosh. Love it. That's Love it. funny. I had Good. that happen yesterday, Ken. I, I re- referenced, um, say anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's an old one. Like people are like, Hmm, don't know about that one. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we'll talk about like that, that on our other podcast, yeah. Trish, like nineties uh, movies uh, today. So, okay. And great to have you here. Maybe before we dive into some of the great resignation uh, conversation and what organizations can do to try to kind of keep managing through what's uh, 
really difficult set of circumstances in the labor market for many, many organizations. Maybe just, you know, read the bio, but maybe tell us a little bit more about uh, you, what you do at CultureAmp and your, what your team does and kind of how that fits uh, overall. Sure. Yeah. As this is my bio, my, I, my background is as an organizational psychologist. So I study what happens when you put a bunch of people in a room together and tell them to accomplish something. Okay. So um, what makes them work together, what makes them fight, all those different things that uh, companies are always trying to figure out. You have all these brilliant plans about how things should work, and then people actually show up and it becomes something else. Um, so my team works around the world, helping our customers think about what is it you need to know about employee experience in order to manage that more effectively, to make sure that the, the gears are always greased and moving well and smoothly, creating instruments to get that information and then helping them interpret that and say, hey, that 25 in autonomy, it means that your employees are feeling and doing this. If you don't like that, then you should do these things instead. Um, really trying to help them not let humans be a big confusing mess and actually think about how the choices and the way they run their business creates the, the different dynamics that they're experiencing. Ken, thank you. Uh, you know, it's not really what we were sitting down to talk about today, but as you were describing your background and what you guys do at CultureAmp, I couldn't help but thinking, boy, I imagine that's like really changed a lot for organizations in the extended work from home model and the, or the extended hybrid, like all of a sudden, because the first thing you said was, oh, I, I look at what, when we put a whole bunch of people in a room and tell them to accomplish something. And the yeah. first thing I thought of, okay, now he's in rooms. Now, now it's a hundred people in their basements, right? All around the yeah. world and not in one room, but maybe that's a subject for, a, you know, a follow-up conversation. It goes along with my references being out of date. Yeah. <laughs> well, so just quick, quick bit on that though. Has that made a big change or do people tend to still behave the same way they would on a virtual team as they would in, in one room? Does that make a big enough difference to where it's really changed things? Yeah. Interestingly enough, I spent five years studying remote work long before the Great Reset Resignation. Oh, and wow. the key thing is remote work and distributed teams require you to be a lot more proactive and explicit. Um, and so all that stuff that you do organically, the drop-bys, you actually have to schedule them. And so that's, that's the big thing I've talked. The one company I've talked to who's been like, this transition has been a breeze had just done a full review of their communication structure and how they share information. And they're like, Oh, remote work's super easy. Cause we just really built out a great way to share information with each other. And everyone who sort of stumbled into it is like, oh my God, I can't just go to Bob's desk and like get the answer. But I think right. that's been the biggest change. And when companies solve that, the other stuff starts becoming easier. Interesting. Great, thank you. So a couple, no, I said I had some numbers and I do, I'll throw them out there really quick. In the last five months, this is US labor market data from my friends at the BLS, about 20 million quits over the last five months, anywhere from 3.6 million up to 4.3 million record in August. Open jobs in the United States hovering or near record numbers. Uh, in July, there were 11.1 million open jobs in the United States. That's an all-time record. It went down to about 10.5 million uh, the month preceding. This date is uh, about a month, uh, month and a half old. Bottom line, right? There's loads and loads of people voluntarily leaving their jobs. There's another really big chunk of people who are just kind of out of the labor market right now. 
and there's lots and lots of open jobs, right? So this led into this, uh, I'm not sure who coined the term, uh, Canon Church, the great resignation, but this, the term, the great resignation got coined recently, I believe, to mm-hmm. sort of indicate the fact that organizations really of all sizes, of all industries and in all parts of our country, at least again, I'm kind of really focusing on US labor market data right now, mm-hmm. um, having difficulty hiring and retaining. So boom, we're in like a weird kind of organizational labor market, almost a crisis. And we read every day about uh, organizations who no one's no one wants to work, no one's applying, all this and that. So that's where we're at. And so many organizations are struggling uh, right now with both hiring and, and with retention. Ken, with all that set up, right, just resetting kind of the, the circumstances that many organizations find them in now, you know, what are some, what is the data or what is the research that you're doing and the consultations with your, your clients suggest to you about some of the, some of the causes of this? Let's talk about that first before we get into what some of the actions could be, uh, you know, for organizations to, to combat this. Yeah, I think the seeds of the great resignation were planted well before the pandemic. So where we're seeing the the strongest amount of turnover is in jobs that didn't have very strong value propositions. They weren't advancing people's careers. They weren't setting them up for financial security. They were sort of surviving day to day. So they didn't have any strong emotional connections to the roles, but they were kind of in a bit of a rut. This is where I am. This is what I'm doing. It's really hard to break both habit and sort of the financial structures that you create. And so the great resignation is really the moment where the pandemic coordinated everybody's uh, break from normal. And so suddenly rather than being a single person here, a single person there, it was the entire workforce around the world, suddenly either getting laid off, having um, a job that became even more unsustainable than it was before. And so we have a lot of burnout-based turnover. Um, There's also the people saying, you know, I just faced death either because I had COVID, someone I knew had COVID, the world just kept telling me I could die at any moment. That leads to big existential questions that make you really willing to say, do I want to do this for the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. And that I think has led to more people who are in retirement age, actually retiring. So we've seen some spikes in those numbers. So the job market has just got, the the employee market has just gotten smaller to begin with. And then people are being picky. If if they're going to go back into a scenario where they're going to get, feel stuck, they want to make sure they're stuck someplace that's better than they were before. Mm -hmm. And right now is the moment where you can say, I lost my job because of COVID. So it's not going to be as negatively received that you're looking. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of jobs. So we're also seeing people take something, play with it for a bit, decide they don't like it, and then go to someplace else. And so because it's all happening at once, it's really hard for organizations to get ahead of the churn. You know, I'm so glad you described it that way, Ken, because I haven't thought of it in quite that fashion. And I know we're going to get into, you know, toward the end more of what people can be doing. But one thing that struck me is you talked about how they're leaving because the job isn't a high value proposition. I haven't really heard many HR leaders or other business leaders, frankly, thinking about the roles in terms of them being valuable. Is that something that you're actually seeing companies do because you're actually dealing with more clients, right? Than what Steve and I might be seeing, or is that the first kind of big mark they're missing in, in this entire approach? 
Yeah, for some of them, they're just missing that mark. Um, okay. One of the things that happens to humans when you stress us out is we try to revert everything back to what we know. So, cause it makes us feel like we're more in control. You'll notice right. people go to old habits. So a lot of organizations are really focused on how do I maintain my culture? How do I maintain my business strategy? How do I maintain, maintain, maintain when right. really this is a moment of change. And so the, wow. the real thing you have to do is take a step back and say, all right, things have been disrupted. Could I do this better? Is the industry changing? I think that's the other piece where a lot of people are going, well, this is how the restaurant industry has always been, or this is how yes. iBanking has always been. The world has been changing and we've been slowing it down, slowing it down, slowing it down. And the pandemic just said, nope, time's up. Now we're moving forward. And I think that is the tension that organizational leaders have to resolve to really master what's going on. Yeah, it's interesting, Ken, because again, I'm coming at this from my limited perspective, right? And what I think about a lot. And the one reaction that I've seen at least the, the most and it's only going to have short-term effectiveness, I think, is uh, especially in many of these jobs that you described, right? These kind of low value proposition, low emotional attachment jobs is uh, compensation. It's just going up. That's just the bottom line, right? So whether it's Amazon or Costco or Chipotle or any, you pick, right? You pick that kind of, you know, out shift-based hourly kind of job uh, where uh, often have to hire hundreds, if not thousands of employees, right. In, in relatively short times, the compensation, that's the lever, right. Most Trisha, to your point, that's mm -hmm. the lever. Most HR slash talent functions are, are pulling right now. Cause in some weird way, maybe they, one that it's other than the financial obligation, one, it's the easiest, right. It's just the easiest thing to do. It's very logical, right. When you say, well, if I raise wages, I will have a, a higher likelihood of hiring people and or retaining them. And, and, and three, it's kind of like, uh, it makes logical sense, right? It makes logical sense. You're going to pay people more. They're going to be quote unquote happier. I know that's not the right word, but I, but I guess that's, I don't know. That's just not sustainable, right? Because plus there's no competitive advantage in it really, because every other competitor that you have for, for talent and for labor could do the same thing, you know, subject to their ability to, to fund it. But uh, I don't know. So that's just yeah. kind of what I'm seeing. That's such a great thing to focus in on because I feel like money is a very mixed bag right now. So for some jobs, money actually is a better value proposition. So if you cannot pay for the childcare or the car to get fixed on time or all the other things that happen to people in lower wage jobs, you, getting more money thrown at you is actually really valuable. It really makes for a better life. After a certain point, once you can pay to actually work, um, which is a sad, an interesting reality of life in the U.S. where you have to earn a certain amount to be able to afford to work. Um, once you get past that point, we do see that money becomes less and less of a motivator because you get the, the initial surge of like, oh, look, I'm making more. And then it all sort of fades into the background of direct deposit. Yeah. And your day-to-day -day experience becomes the thing you start talking about. And so especially as you, know, you have more remote work, there's going to be less opportunity for conspicuous consumption. So money becomes something that you don't want to lean into as you move up in um, job tier and want to focus in on what am I actually asking these people to do? Is it developmental for them? Do they have career security? Are they feeling um, like they have good relationships with colleagues that makes them want to get up and do this? Becomes more important than just 
throwing more money at them that just becomes a more and more abstract thing or a status symbol that they can't show off as easily. You know, though, I think that you're, you're hundred percent correct, but the disconnect might be that for years, HR leaders have said compensation is not the only way to make people join our company, make people stay in our company. So there's a disconnect between maybe even what's reported on the news and what CEOs or CFOs might be hearing is, oh, we need to raise our wages. And they come to the HR person and say, okay, we've got to raise the wages. That'll fix it. It's like, what do you tell those HR leaders who have to then have that conversation and convince them that, well, what we really need to focus on is this learning and development and all these opportunities, because you're right. I'm sitting here thinking like, there's, there's a certain point where you'll do, you know, whatever job if they pay Mm -hmm. you more. Right. But no one back to that, whether your job has a a strong value proposition, no one's going to do a crappy job. That's just horrible for any amount of money. Right. People even say that kind of jokingly all the time, like, well, you could never pay me enough to do that job. Right. Well, someone has to do that job. So maybe what's the message if you're in that situation where you're like, you, you're the HR leader, you know, this, and you're trying to convince, you know, your powers that be maybe, or your colleagues to get on board with this, that it's not just about the bunny. Do you have like a silver bullet for those, <laughs> those leaders or <laughs> well, I, I have a first step to the silver bullet, which okay, is good. data. Like actually ask your employees what you want. I love what you're referencing with, you can't pay me enough. I see that in comments on our surveys all the time. And I, it so opens up the door to say, they're not talking, money isn't the thing that they're really asking for. It's just the easiest thing to ask for. If you read what they're saying after you can't pay me enough, it's, right. I want you to respect me. I want this job to give me career opportunities. I want to feel like I have people that I work with and I'm accomplishing something. All those things are things organizations can do without spending more money. I literally had one leader come in and say, they're just angry because they didn't get bonuses. I'm like, mm-hmm. actually, they're terrified that you're going to lay them off. That's what they're saying. So all you have to do is go and give them your business plan, and they're going to feel a lot more secure in staying with you. But like, you're so focused on what you control through your spreadsheets that you're losing sight of the fact that your employees are more than just the paycheck that you give them. They're more than the transaction. And so I think that opens the door to say, Hey, you have a lot of myths about what's going on, but nothing anyone is saying matches up with that. Um, The other thing I think HR people need to be really careful of is that the justification for change has to be something that leader cares about. I see so many people giving the okay. argument of the employees are unhappy or they, they're hurting and the leader's like, but that's not what I'm paid to manage. So tell me how they're hurting affects my bottom line. And so really making sure that your message to the stakeholder is couched in the connection to the thing that they are rewarded and penalized for. And then you can carry it from that initial data collection to actual change. If that narrative breaks down, you don't get much further than the presentation. 
Yeah, and that's a great point, Ken, because we talk about this all the time when we talk about deploying software or deploying new programs or deploying anything, any kind of change, right, to employees' lives. There's, we're always told to address the what's in it for me, right, down to the individual employee level, which I think is important. But you're making a great point that the what's in it for me also applies to the CEO, CFO types, right, who often make some decisions around investment in, the, in these types of things. We started, Ken, we started to get into some of the uh, some of the ways HR folks and can start really reframing this problem, getting beyond things like baseline things like comp and benefits, et cetera. I'd love for you to maybe share some, and you can sort of anonymize this, of course, right? Some, some of the folks that you work with that are actually doing well, have done well, say, through pandemic, through, the, through everybody go work from home, everybody be safe, right? And trying to, to mitigate all this. It's, it's a year and a half plus into this. Right. We're all look, it looks like we're all in our basement still, if you will. <laughs> so uh, may, maybe share some uh, if you can share some insights on the organizations that are actually doing OK and really managing to thrive th through these really tough times. Yeah. So I think the organizations that are doing really well are being very deliberate. So they're being clear on what it is that they are letting go of and what they're maintaining. Um, they're also much more willing to take a step back from the cultures they've maintained and say, we're getting new people who work new different ways is an opportunity for us to say, could we do it better? So for example, rather than saying, all right, I'm gonna indoctrinate everybody in our old work process. You've all come from our competitors. Do you have any insights on how our work process could be a little bit better? Um, one company refers to it as like looking at things with the, their baby eyes because they don't know the organization in and out. They don't make the assumptions. And so they've been able to tell them, hey, this work process that you have, actually, I've seen it done better. And why don't we make that switch? Um, so really listening to those new employees coming in for that third person perspective. It's cheap. It's literally free consulting um, on top of their, their basic jobs. I think the other pieces for the ones that are managing the, the remote work piece really well is their embracing the fact that they do need to be more deliberate, more explicit. They're writing more things down. They're calling out the change. They're mourning some of what used to be. So they're, they're saying to people like, yes, we are sad that what we were can no longer be, but we're also excited about what we're going to be. I think a lot of companies have tripped up when they say, be excited about the future and pretend the past never happened. And so just that moment of acknowledgement really sets employees free to move forward. Um, I also think the ones that are doing really well do really good expectation management. So they don't tell people we're going to be a thing that there's really no reason to expect anymore. So that the size of your um, book of business might be changing. We're just going to call that out and let you know it's ambiguous right now or it's going, here's what it's going to be, and it's going to be harder or less than it was before. But being ambiguous about stuff usually creates a lot more trouble than uh, it's worth. Yeah, it feels like when you're ambiguous, people will fill in the rest of the story, whether they know the facts or not, right? So then they'll start making decisions and changes. And I would think be much more likely to leave their job if they're not, I mean, things might actually be fairly secure, but if they don't know it, they're going to think they're not and assume the worst and go potentially. So, yeah, I, I have one customer who had, has been making exceptions all over the place for people um, in order to like, 
keep things going, keep people engaged. They saw a real frustration amongst their, their customer base because they were constantly making exceptions. So no one knew what was happening. All they wanted was structure. All the employees wanted was structure. And they actually hired somebody who said, I'm just going to enforce structure. We're going to have six months of frustration. And then we're going to start seeing people getting better. And that's exactly what they're starting to see is that, oh, there's structure, there's predictability. I can get my stuff done more effectively, take that energy and put it someplace else. So I think there's another key piece of, in this era where everyone feels like all structure has melted down, focusing on rebuilding that is going to be really, really key. Um, otherwise, everyone's going to be running around. I, I sometimes talk about this as the great transformation that is coming after the great resignation, because um, a lot of organizations are losing their historical knowledge. They're losing the people who know the politics, what keeps the gears greased, and they just got to rediscover all of that. And so being very deliberate about how do we get things done is going to be really key to being successful. Yeah, and you've seen a lot of that uh, from our perspective or mine, for sure, doing a lot of stuff around HR technology. We've seen a lot of um, development in the, across the industry in um, workflows and emphasis on helping people navigate the steps of, of a journey in a structured fashion, as you, as you said, Ken. So the technology, I think a lot of the technology is reflecting that need for more organization, more structure, more um, you know, I don't know, like, I, I know what to expect when something happens kind of thing. And it's not just who knows what's going to happen next. And, and that, that's scary, right? Especially in the, in the workplace. I guess, Ken, one of the last things I wanted to just get your take on is, you know, in this, in the light of the great resignation, one of the, the themes that's been teased out a lot is just um, power dynamics shifting, right? Which traditionally have almost, <laughs> unless you're like, like an NBA basketball player or something that, you know, unless you're LeBron James or that kind of like, you know, quit, you know, ex, you know, unusual talent in certain industries for the most part, right. The power dynamics in, in the employee employer relationship have always been on the employer side. They just always have. Right. And they've gotten more and more towards that side, at least in the U S over the last 40, 50 years, primarily due to the really, really sharp decline in union membership across, mm -hmm. across the labor force. But so without diving into sort of union stuff, I don't really talk about that. It's really more about just the mindset. Do you sense, mm -hmm. Ken, when you're talking to organizations around these talent issues and retention issues and engagement issues, are they, are they buying into the fact that, hey, we don't hold all the power now and, and, and the talent, the people who have skills that we need really have a lot more, I, I guess, power, I guess is the only way I can express it in, in this relationship. Yes and no. So I think one of the things that's always funny about organizations is they're made up of people who disagree. And so there's always, there's definitely a real trend in a number of organizations and leaders saying, we just need to be different. And there's others who are like, we can wait this out. Um, and so I think that there is, there's a definite movement to recognize workplace flexibility and other things that, especially when they have hidden benefits. So a lot of flexibility investments come with reductions in real estate costs. Yeah. And so those are really taking off. I think the things that are less clear are harder. I, I know when COVID began, I was telling people, you really need to do education and accessibility to vaccinations. Just off the bat, you don't need a survey, just do it. Mm -hmm. Very few people just did it and wow. then moved and had, had to do surveys to rediscover it. And so I think there's, there's still a very strong sense of we're going to get back to what we were. 
that is in, is right now fighting with, you know, we're going to change. And so the longer this goes on, the more people flip and we're going to see more organizations saying this is a new normal and we're just going to make the change. Um, things like when does your real estate lease expire, I think is one of those key trigger moments where it's like, ah, now we can just let go of the building. Okay, I'm willing to make the change. Yeah. So I, I, I think we're going to see more people switch the longer the dynamics stay in play. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. And, and I mean, we're all hoping we're going to get closer back to normal from a, a work and life perspective. I guess we're getting there, Trish. I don't know. But it's... it's I don't know that everyone liked the normal, though. I, that's the thing that I think is underlying everything is lots of people didn't actually like normal. And so that's why they're not going back to their jobs. That's why we're having this delayed return to these really tightly managed, um, financially choked work systems that underlie shipping and services industries. And even some of the you know, white collar work where you're just like churning out code from like 12 at night to 12, 12 in the morning. Yeah. So I think there's, I think that has to be reckoned with, or this is going to drag out a lot longer than anyone wants. I feel like you just, I don't know, at least for me, opened my eyes on some of these reasonings I just never considered. So I think you're right. I think that they're, and probably the people that have not gone back, they're feeling better about it. But then the other people, like you mentioned earlier, you kind of go back to what you know, even if you didn't like it, right? A lot of people that have gone back are just doing it out of, I guess a feeling of comfort or safety because they know it and it makes them less anxious, but it's still not better. So it feels like big work on both sides, right? If you've left your job, big work on finding some place that's going to be valuable or you feel valued, who, you know, you're doing work that you find interesting and that pays you enough, right? All the things. But then those workers that have gone back are like, we're, we're just back doing this because we know this, but we're still not happy about it. Yeah. I think there's a lot of frustration and resentment on both yeah. sides where some people are saying, come back, restore normal, everything will be fine. And others are saying, no, join me in pushing back and making the normal better than it was before. Yeah. And you know, people who are more risk averse are going to be on one side and people who are less are going to be on the other. And that is, that's a big argument within American culture writ large, but especially within workplaces. Yeah, wow. it's, it's really so crazy. It's been just a remarkable couple of years. I'll, I'll just, I'm going to close a little bit with just two quick little just observations I had based on some of the things Ken, you said. One was like the fact uh, you talked about how, hey, it wasn't so great before all this, right? It was actually kind of crappy. Trisha, I was, I was following the, uh, I follow the workplace news out of China, right? Because, you know, just because we've been there a few times. And you've heard of the 996, right? That 996 labor yes. schedule in the tech company. Yes. So you work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week, right? That's right. like, they just, the coders, right? You, that Ken, you said, were you grinding them out? So they're grinding these people out. Like it, it's awful. And one of the really big uh, Chinese tech companies, I can't remember if it was Tencent or Alibaba, but one of them, oh no, it's ByteDance. It's, it's ByteDance, the, the, the folks behind TikTok. They uh, basically said, hey, we're publicly, we'll see behind closed doors, who knows what they do, but they're publicly saying we're, we're out on 996. 
you can, you know, we want you to work from 10 a.m. till 7 p.m. five days a week. That's your schedule. And don't work beyond that schedule and don't work on the weekend, at least publicly they're saying that. So to me, wow. that's like a glaring example, right? Of the kind of, of change, Ken, you're talking about like, hey, it wasn't so great before, right? And, mm-hmm. and let's figure out a way to make it better. Absolutely. Great stuff. All right. I think uh, Trish, uh, Ken, we'll wrap here. Ken, folks can connect with you and, and the, the work you guys do at Culture Amp How. Uh, you can find me at Dr. Ken Machos on LinkedIn. Uh, also, you can reach out to CultureAmp uh, at our website, CultureAmp.com. Awesome. Great stuff, Ken. We will put that in the show notes as well as a, way, as a way to find you. We really appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. Thanks for having All right. me. All right. Great stuff. For <laughs> our guest, uh, Ken Matos, for Trish McFarland, my name is Steve Bose. Thanks so much for listening to the HR Happy Hour show. Find all the show archives at hrhappyhour.net. Thanks, and we will see you next time.